Great. Well, let's go ahead, please, and turn in our Bibles to, to Psalm 32. The title for today's message is Decisions. We're in, a, in our series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. We're taking very ordinary things of life and then looking at, well, what, what does God have to say about those things? And how can we glorify God in the midst of those things? Last, last week, we looked at speech and the way we talk. This week, I really sense the Lord wants us to look at decisions. And so we're just going to look at one verse, Psalm 32, verse 8. It reads as follows. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, there really is so much packed into that verse by way of promise, by way of life-changing truth, which if we can understand, changes our whole outlook on the way that you guide us and allows us to have great courage and confidence in the decisions we make. And so, Lord, would you speak to our souls today? Would you guide us through your word? And would you speak to our souls that we may go forward from today and where potentially there has been uncertainty, where there be certainty. And where potentially there has been misconception and confusion, where there be clarity with regard to decisions. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, life by very nature is full of decisions. We all face decisions all the time because it's a part of life. And so relationships... Who should I go out with? Should I go out with anybody? You know, if I should go out with somebody, when should I go out with them? What would God want? What would what would He like in the midst of that? Marriage. Who should I marry? Should I marry at all? And if I actually start pursuing somebody going out with them before I get married, then how long would be a good like period before I actually ask them to marry me? And how would I even know whether a good person to marry or not? Children. So I got married and okay, well, should we have children? Yes, no, should we have one, two, three, four, I don't know, and when should we have them? How, what would be the best thing to do in the kingdom of God? What about career? What type of job does God want me to have? About my time, how should I use my time for the glory of God? What does he want me to do with my time, my energy, my money? Understanding that ultimately all things that I own in all of my life are actually the Lord's and at best I'm a steward. So what does he want me to do with what he's entrusted to me with that, what, that which I will give an account for before the Lord on that day of judgment. And about church, how do you know which church would be a good church to join and then be a part of? And then when you join the church, how do you know what would be a good thing to serve in and really pursue for the glory of God? Life group and being a part of Bible study, what, what would be a good thing to do in that? What group do you choose? Why do you choose them? Friendships. Who would be good friends to have? Who would be bad friends to have? And how would you know? Decision-making it's such a massively ordinary part of life. And yet I think for so many Christians, decision-making is an area of great uncertainty and often confusion. Because decision-making carries with it lots of questions. Questions like, well, as a Christian, how do I ensure that I'm making good decisions? How do I ensure that I'm making decisions that truly bring glory to God in my life? Understand that my life is not my own and I want to please him. How do I... How do I know then what's definitely going to bring glory to God in the intricacies 
of the decisions I make. How do I discern what God's will is for my life? Understanding that he has a path for my life, how do I know if I'm on it or not? Am I on it? Am I not? How do I know? How do I know whether God's guiding me? How do I discern God's guidance towards me and my decisions? I mean, is is it an audible voice? How do I really know when it comes to marriage and relationships and career and time, such ordinary things? How do I really know God's guidance towards me in those specific things? They're questions that a lot of us ask, aren't they? Dr. Bruce Waltke in his excellent book, Finding the Will of God, which I'd truly recommend on this topic, says, for many Christians, discerning the will of God is a mystery. A career woman with a desire to serve God unexpectedly finds a travel brochure from the Marshall Islands. Is God telling her to move to the island as a missionary? A young Christian trying to decide whether to attend a Christian college is encouraged to pray and find the mind of God. After he prays, his friend asks him, Quick, what are the first thoughts that the Lord puts into your mind? A retiree, wondering about where to invest her money, lets her Bible fall open and then blindly points to a verse of Scripture. The verse is about little children coming to Christ, so she decides to give money to a child evangelism organization. Listen, well-meaning, but are these really valid methods for determining God's will for our lives? That's a question that a lot of people ask. And I, particularly having grown up in charismatic context, used to use the holy finger often. So you'd just be, okay, well, Lord, and oh, yes, oh, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, it's something to do with two. It's something to, uh, that's the way we used to try and find out how's God just, you know, sending us forward. And we really had no idea how, how to know whether God's directing us in the midst of our lives. Decision-making, so ordinary, and yet often something of great uncertainty and confusion for us. And by way of backdrop then on today's topic of decisions, I'm very grateful for this verse, Psalm 32, verse 8. Because in this psalm, David begins this penitential psalm by directing our attention to the blessing of forgiveness. He begins by, by basically placarding the forgiveness of God before our eyes so that we may behold his goodness and say, you know what, how great it is to be forgiven. He then talks about how God is our refuge and how God protects us. And then in verse 8, what happens, which I just think is so incredible, is God really breaks in on David. And David in this verse becomes an oracle of God. He's not communicating to God in this moment. God is communicating through David to us and to the people. And this is what God says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Two incredible promises. The promise of guidance and the promise of intimate care. The promise of guidance. How can you know in decision making what God's guidance is? Well, let's start right here with this promise. It's a promise that he will instruct you, he will teach you, and he will counsel you. It's an absolute promise that he is going to aid you in the decision making of life. And it's an absolute promise too that that his eye will always be upon you. And that gives me great confidence because we have a tendency to screw up, right? Or is it just me? Maybe it's only me. And think, oh, what if I make the wrong decision? My whole life is going to be ruined. No, it's not because his eye is ever upon you. And so he's always, as a father, watching over your decision-making, always willing to step in, always willing to make drastic changes where they need to be. And so I want this verse, these promises, to form a backdrop to today's topic on decisions. God is an active God. God will guide you. He will help you discern his path. 
And God will, by his grace, always watch over you. The question then is, how does he do that? How does he guide us? And that's really where I want to spend our time today. Now, for those of you that are visiting with us, you will notice very soon that this message is more topical in nature than exegetical in nature. By nature, we do go through books of the Bible, and on the whole, we just exegete that verse and go through it at length. And we should do that, and that should be the main diet of any church. However, on some topics, like how does God guide us, that's tricky to go to a certain passage and say, well, therefore, this is how we make decisions. You would be really reading into that text um, in an unhelpful way, in an unbiblical way. So when it comes to topics like this, you have to take them exegetically. What, topically, what does the whole Bible say on how does God guide us? And so that's the way we're going to look at it. And my hope then is that when it comes to decisions, we would have certainty out of uncertainty, clarity on an issue like how does God guide us that is often confused and often full of misconceptions. So there's four ways, right? That God guides us. Four things that I want to look at this morning as to how he guides us in our decision making for his glory and our good. And so number one, how does he guide us? Number one, through his word. This is the first and this is the absolute primary way God guides us as his children. He guides us primarily through this, okay? This is where we start. This is, as Emma said, in the Wisdom for Women stuff, this is the bottom of the pile of the Jenga pile, okay? This is the, this is the one thing that you cannot remove. We stand on this. God guides us primarily through his word. Psalm 119, verse 105, says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light and to my path. What a wonderful, vivid picture that is, don't you think? Of God's guidance. How special. It's one of those verses that we memorize as kids, and then I think over time it sort of empties itself of value. But this word is a lamp unto my feet, and a guide unto my path. You know, I used to be a youth pastor um, many years ago when I first became, came into ministry at 25, and one of the things that I introduced to the teens ministry, because I thought it was fun, uh, was something called a lock-in. So what we did is we basically got all the teens together and then we locked them in the church building overnight uh, with us. And we just had a lot of fun. Now I'm older and I want to get to bed by 10 o'clock. But at that point in my life, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And so we gathered on one occasion, the very first time we did it, we gathered all the teens um, in the church together. There was about 40 of them. And we turned all the lights off, locked them all in. And then what me and my friend did is we got these biggest, biggest water pistols you could ever imagine, uh, which is in pitch black. And then we, we managed to get like these huge mag lights and we, strap, we just taped them onto the water pistol on the top. And so we told the teens, you've got like 30 seconds to hide and then we're coming. So they all went, they all went running off. They're running into things because it's pitch black and there was no windows. So they're just running into things. It's all going nightmare. They don't realize we've got the torches. And then... We suddenly turn the torches on and they're screaming, they're running. But the point was, no one knew where to go. But then when we whacked these lights on, you could see everything. And the light came after, out of complete darkness. You were able to see very clearly where, we, where people were going, what was going on. Well, this word is like that. It's a dark world. And people are all the time coming to you pastorally and saying, well, I just don't know what to do. Well, have you turned the torch on? Because this, this is where we start. This is God's guidance. This is, this is the thing in God's grace that is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, bringing clarity into dark, dark situations that are often called decisions. How appropriate then and pertinent were Paul's words to 2 Timothy and to Timothy in Timothy 2. 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, listen to this. He says, but as for you, 
Continue on what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is then what he says. Listen, all scripture. Paul knows he's going to die, right? He knows this is the end of his life. He's trying to help Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy is going to be taking on the mantle of the gospel and starting to take that out to different churches. Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, listen, equipped for every good work. Everything. He's effectively saying, Timothy, listen, I know I'm going to be gone soon, but I love you as my child in the faith, and I want you to grasp the gospel. I want you to understand the gospel. I want you to influence these churches with the gospel. And as you lead them and as you care for them, you're going to go through numerous decisions that you are not going to have a clue what to do. But Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. And this is all you need. It's useful for teaching and for reproof and correction. If you can stick with this, son, if you can stick with this and allow this in God's grace to guide you, it will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path because in this word is everything you need for you to be competent and equipped for every good work. Isn't that wonderful? His care. Well, 2,000 years ago, that was Paul's instruction to Timothy. But I think if Paul was here now, he'd be saying exactly the same. Because this word hasn't changed in its value and its importance. And that's why we must, folks, we must be people of the word. We must be people that get into our Bibles and spend time in God's word and meditate on God's word. I mean, we live in just, I think, one of the most busy cities I've ever been in my entire life. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a season two. That has nothing on this place. This place is permanently busy commutes are huge people leave the mornings early they, they come back late at night and then outside of that people live pretty hardcore social lives and because seemingly in this culture unlike britain in britain you have school friends and then you move on and you leave your school friends and then you go to university and you move on and you leave your university friends here you keep them all so everybody's got like ten thousand facebook friends um, and like to keep up to speed with everybody that's complex for this culture and it creates massive busyness, huge busyness. We also live in a golden age, I think, when it comes to Christian publishing. There are books on every Christian value you could possibly imagine. I think that's a grace of God to us. I think it's good that God's grace has provided authors that can do that. But we must understand that's, that's not this word. We should never be too busy to not be guided by this word. And I've been there and I've done it. I've had seasons in my life where you just think, I am so busy, I've just got to get up in the morning, I've got to get on. And then you spend most of the day thinking, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. Well, it's because you're walking around in the dark and you never turned the torch on. You, you never sat with the Lord, you never spent time with the Lord. He, he never guided you. You just got on with your day. I mean, look over the page, Psalm 1. Turn back to that. This is why we must be people of the Word. Let the psalmist convince you. He says, blessed is the man, literally barach. So the Hebrew word there meaning just supremely happy. Supremely happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This fellow, this fellow is probably a really busy guy. There may be numerous pieces of Christian literature out there. There must be numerous things that he could read and do. No, he meditates on the law day and night. This is what he's like, verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You know what? When it comes to my life making decisions, I want, I want to be like that guy. I want to be refreshed and nourished. I want to be stable and durable. I want to be flourishing and fruitful both in season and out of season. I want to ensure that by God's grace in all that I do, I prosper. Well, he's just told you how. Just meditates on the Lord day and night. Gives himself to this. See, what he does, he hasn't got some type of weird special connection with God. That's not what's happening. He's not like him. He's not doing the holy finger where you just pick a, pick a verse and like, oh, God's guided me on that. That's not what he's doing. He's spending time meditating on God's word. And as he does that, he really knows God. He knows God's values. He knows God's passions. He knows God's character. And he understands ever increasingly what God wants of him. What God will, how God will help him and aid him. What God wants his character to look like. What God wants his life to look like. And the more then he falls in love with God, the more he understands God, the more he understands then his life through God's eyes. And so he just makes decisions in light of that. Guided by the word. And what happens? In all that he does, he prospers. Because <laughs> he's seeing the path. The light of the word is guiding him. So how does God guide us? Well, number one, through his word. Number two then. Through his providence. Through his providence. Dr. Bruce Waltke again says, There is an element to life that we do not control called providence. And that too is the benevolent guidance of God. He is at work in the circumstances of our lives in both small ways and large. Sometimes we refer to it as chance because that is sometimes the way his providence appears to us. Sometimes the Bible uses it that way. For example, in Ruth 2, verse 3, reads that Ruth chanced on the field of Boaz. But her biographer then makes it clear that while it seemed mere chance, it was the Lord who superintended her life. At the very beginning of the story, the Lord ended the drought in Judah and gave his people food. At the end of the story, it was the Lord who opened her womb and gave her offspring. God never spoke to Ruth directly through visions or words. But he always directed the affairs of her life according to his own purposes and for her good. Listen, in reality, I love this. In reality, nothing ever happens to the Christian by chance. God does not have accidents. Things happen by design. And this element of providence is evident throughout all of our lives. It is. This element of providence is evident throughout all of our lives. Why is that? Well, it's because this is one of the ways that God guides us. Like a father to a child who can have children playing in a room and multiple children playing in a room, and yet as a father, he's always aware of what they're doing, where they are, what they're in need of. His eye is ever watchful, just like God the Father's is towards us. And in God's grace, because he's all-powerful then, he does and can move in providential ways. You see, sometimes he prevents us from doing that which we think we'd like to do, right? 
something that we really think, I'm going to do this. I really feel God's in this. This is good. And then you find it doesn't happen at all. It's, the, the game just completely stops. We see that in the Bible. So you see it with Joseph. He wants to go back with his brothers to see his dad. And yet his brothers think, now nah, we'll sell you into slavery instead. So we'll put you in this pit and then we'll send you off. That was a bit of a game changer. God prevented this moment, but he prevented it ultimately for the whole nation to be saved. But it didn't look like that at the time. But that's actually what happened through grace. What about Paul? Time and time again, he was saying, okay, I, I believe God wants me to go here. and I think I should go here and do this. And then he gets to the place and he's like, God is preventing me. I just can't get in. I can't do this. That's what we see in the Bible. God's providence preventing people. And he does it today too. The job. The job that we've always wanted and we think we've got it and then we don't get it at all. And we think, God, what are you doing? How did this work out? You know, do, do you not care? Or, oh, Yeah, he does. He's working providentially. The relationship that you're all excited about and you think, this must be the one I'm going to marry. And then she says, no, I'm not. Oh, hang on, hang on. I thought that was my life. I thought that's the way it was going to work out. No. No, God's, God's preventing it providentially. That's what he does. The house move that we're really looking forward to. And want, we want to go. We want to invest in a house or rent a certain home. And we're all excited about it. And then it falls through at the last minute. And you think, God, what are you doing? Well, he prevents. That's one of the things he does. I remember when we were first trying to get into Australia a couple of years ago, I was a pastor at Christchurch in the UK, um, loved that job, enjoyed that job, felt the Lord calling us to Australia. Um, so we pursued that, and the actual move took about two years. It was meant to take six months, but we couldn't get a visa. And it was just going, becoming an absolute nightmare. The challenge was, by that point, I'd already given my old job as executive pastor of Christchurch UK. So I was effectively jobless waiting for the Australian government to work out whether they wanted me in or not. And I'm aware there's just some woman sitting at a desk somewhere that controls my entire life. And yet it was good to know that behind that woman at that desk ultimately was the providential hands of God. He was preventing. He was staying. Because he knows best. He knows when the time is right, when the time is perfect. That's what he does. But sometimes he doesn't just prevent. Sometimes he presents, doesn't he? presents us with opportunities that we had never seen coming. And we realize his care and his grace in that. One example of that is a story of Michael Bordeaux. His story goes as follows. Michael Bordeaux was studying Russian at Oxford. His Russian teacher, Dr. Zernov, sent him a letter he had received because he thought it would interest young Michael. It was a letter detailing persecutions of Christians behind the Iron Curtain. The letter was written very simply, with no adornment, and although Michael was not involved at that time with any work in Russia, as he read it, he felt like he was hearing the true voice of the persecuted church. The letter then included, quite simply, with the names Varava and Pranina. In August 1964, then, Michael went on a trip to Moscow, and on his first evening there, he met up with old friends who detailed how the persecutions were getting worse. They told him how one church in particular, the old church of St. Peter and St. Paul, had been demolished. They suggested that he go and see it for himself. So he took a taxi and arrived at dusk. When he came to the square where he had remembered a very beautiful church, he found nothing except a 12-foot-high fence which hid the rubble where the church had been. Over on the other side of the square were two women. He was eager to talk to them to learn more about what had gone on, and so he approached them. 
they asked him, who are you? He replied, well, I'm from England. I've come to find out what is happening here in the Soviet Union. At which point they invited him to come with them. They took him to the house of a lady who asked him why he had come. He explained that he had received a letter from the Ukraine via Paris, handed to him by his Russian teacher, from two ladies called Varava and Pranina. And as he said those names, there was silence. He wondered if he had said something wrong. But the woman just pointed in quiet amazement and said, Well, this is Varava and this is Pranina. The two women who Michael had met at the church were the two authors. The population of Russia is over 140 million. The Ukraine, from where the letter was written, is over 800 miles from Moscow. Michael Bordeaux had flown from England six months after the letter had been written. He and the women would not have met had either party arrived at the demolished church an hour earlier or an hour later. And yet this was one of the ways that God called Michael Bordeaux to set up his life's work as head of Keston College, a research unit at Oxford devoted to helping persecuted believers in communist lands. That's the providence of God. Hemming in, holding in both behind and before, who knows as the master of the galaxies where everybody is and divinely ordained setups that we don't see coming. But actually in his grace, he causes He ordains into being. God guided Michael through some incredible circumstances, but the truth is he does that for us too. He prevents, he stops, and he also presents. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Amen and amen. He does. Folks, there may be times in your life, and I'm sure there has been, I'm sure there will be, When you're trying to do something in your life that you really want to do, and yet it is just not happening, that's the Lord. He's preventing you for his glory and your good. Maybe you're going to understand that with regard to that specific situation. Maybe you never will. But one day I think you will look back and realize that was his hand. He saw things that I never saw. And praise God for his protection and his care in my life. So how does God guide us? Well, number one, through his word. Number two, through his providence. Number three, then, through the compelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, make no mistake, this guidance is without question subservient to the word, subservient to this word, okay? So we never get guided and compelled by the Holy Spirit to do something that this book does not orchestrate or allow. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's something else. And yet what we shouldn't do is just throw the baby out of the bathwater and start to think, well, there's no subjective element in God's guidance. Then it's just the word and the word. And that's all we go. No, there's definitely the compelling of the Holy Spirit involves in our lives. It's how he guides us. So the Bible clearly tells us that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. Period. Okay, it's Ephesians 1 verse 14. It says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Okay, we'll take that and we'll live on that. So if you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. They come together. Okay, these things are joined. And the Holy Spirit then has a big role to play in our lives. And as you study the Bible, you realize there's many roles. For example, he reveals Christ's presence to us and illuminates his work. Those times when you are singing praises to God, 
and you just think, if I died right now, I'm a happy man because you're just so amazed with Jesus. Okay, that's not because you're really amazed with Jesus. That's because the Holy Spirit is helping you be amazed with Jesus. He's, he's revealing Jesus to you so that you're being affected in your soul. It's one of the things he does. When we go through trials and we just sense that the Lord is with us, he is. It's the Holy Spirit. He's revealing Jesus to us in the midst of what we're actually walking through. He gives us boldness in our evangelistic work. We see it all the way through Acts. Those times when you want to share the gospel with somebody, and to be honest, you're completely bricking it, but then the moment arrives and you just think, I'm going for it. Well, that isn't because you've just had a sudden urge of courage. That's the Holy Spirit in that moment giving you boldness and giving you grace to go after the task which he's called you to do. He aids us to grow and become more like Jesus through the process of sanctification. That's what we're taught, called to as Christians, to pursue holiness, to put off the old self, be renewed in our mind and put on the new self. We're called to do that. but We can't do it by ourselves. This isn't Alcoholics Anonymous trying to just work things through. No, we're joined by the Holy Spirit in the task of becoming more like the Savior. Something we're pursuing. He gives us gifts for the building up of the body. To each one is given for the common good. To each one is given a gift for the common good so that we all play our part and that this body is built up for the glory of God. But that isn't, that isn't all he does, okay? He also guides us. Philippians 2 verse 13 says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you, within. He compels you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He guides. He gives us grace. He helps us know what to do in a certain circumstance. See, for me, that, that doesn't look like, the compelling of the Holy Spirit for me doesn't look like an audible voice. I've never heard God's audible voice in my life. I mean, sometimes you meet people and they say, yeah, I was just chatting to God about this and, and he said this. And, and I think, man alive, you have a different relationship with God. I love that one. But, you know, for me, this isn't a, like a, we're not, it's not like talking to my mom on the phone. I can't hear a voice coming back. But what I do sense is a compelling of the Lord. And I think sometimes when people articulate as if God truly is talking to them, it's a two-way conversation, then that can be a challenge. Because I think a lot of people can then sit back and think, clearly then I'm not a Christian because I've never heard God's angelic voice coming from above my bed talking to me. I just don't get that. But what I do get is, is a compelling of the Spirit where he works within and he then helps us. See, I think what the compelling of the Spirit looks like is a joy and a peace and a faith when it comes to decision-making, i.e., I've either got a joy and a faith and a peace about making that decision, or within that decision, I have no joy and no peace and no faith to pursue this at all. That's the compelling of the Spirit. Now, it has a subjective element, true. But is it real? Absolutely. Because God works in us to will. He helps us from within. And I've been on the receiving end of that many, many times. I remember before I became a pastor, my pastor at the time, Pete Greasy, just asked me, well, what do you want to do with your life? I was working in, I was basically training people how to sell car insurance at that time. And he said, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I have no idea. Um, thanks for asking. It was a short conversation. And he said, well, look, I think you should pray about what, what God wants you to do with your life. I said, fair enough. I had no desire, no thought whatsoever about ever being a pastor it, it generally had never even come into my mind but i said i'd pray about it um so i did 
And about three months later, actually, I was going to see Emma. We were courting at the time. It was 10 o'clock at night, so I was going to Emma's parents' house, and I just finished my day at, day at work, and I'm driving to Emma's house. I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just thinking about wondering what's for dinner. That's about, oh, that's about as deep that is going on in that moment. And I'm driving to Emma's house, and just before I got to Emma's house, the, there's a bend, and as I went around the bend, I sensed the Lord with me in that moment in an unusual way. So is God present all the time? Yes, he is present all the time. But if you read your Bible, there's also moments where God is particularly present in a way that you recognize it. You recognize his presence. And so as I go around the bend, I can still remember it now, go around the bend, sense the Lord with me. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but a compelling voice very clearly of one of to, to lay my life down to serve his sheep. And at that time, I also saw a vision of a shepherd with a sheep. I'm crying by the time I finish around the bend, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm going, now going to the bend. I'm in tears. I arrive at Emma's house. I'm crying. She's like, what's up? I'm like, I think God wants me to be a pastor. She thinks I've had a car accident or something like that. Like, oh, I haven't had a car accident. It's okay. Everything's okay. But I think God wants me to be a pastor. Okay. And she just said, well, you know, you should call Pete and let him know. And said, oh, okay, I will. I should do that. Call him. Pete, I think God wants me to be a pastor. He said, oh, thank goodness you've realized it. I've been wondering all this time. And yeah, well, okay. Well, he's told me now. But it was just that compelling of the spirit where you just think, I, I think, I think this is what the Lord wants me to do. Same happened when we were moving to Australia. We didn't want to move to Australia. We didn't want to come here already. It's far too far. You know, it's, just, it's too expensive, too far. I don't want to come here. I'm a pastor of another church. I'm loving my life. And it, we're out for breakfast, as you know. And just after we've eaten the toast and the sausages, we're now onto the beans. Um, and we're talking about Australia. I was meant to be helping oversee this church plant from afar, as in me in the UK and somebody else doing it here. Um, and yet there wasn't anybody clearly to lead it at the moment in terms of what, the Lord, what we felt the Lord was needed for the role. Um, and so Emma's just asking me, about what, what type of guy do you think it would need to be? And I'm just listing off, well, I think you'd need to be this, and I think you'd need to do this, and I think you'd have to be strong in that, wouldn't have to be worried about that. And by the time I've finished, and I'm getting quite passionate about what this guy's going to be, she just says, well, you sound like that type of guy to me. That was, that was the most expensive breakfast we've ever had, <laughs> looking back at it. <laughs> And at that point, Emma laughed and, and I laughed, but it was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and we both knew, we both knew in that moment, compelled by the Spirit, we're going to be moving to Australia. And we knew it. We were utterly convinced. We came home, we were watching, you know, what, what's that Australian show? Is it? Wanted Down Under. We were watching Wanted Down Under. We were watching The Wiggles in Sydney. Anything that was needed. Um, we were just aware that we really sensed the Lord was calling us. And even actually when I spoke to my pastor about it, he said, look, I don't think so, and which we were fine with. The Lord was still very much quickened in our hearts that I think, I think we'll be going at some point. We'll be, we'll be moving to Australia. I think that's what the Lord does. Was it an audible voice? Nope. But did we really sense that was the Lord was doing? Was there a peace and a faith and a joy about doing that? There was, absolutely. Completely and utterly. I just knew that that's that's what we should be doing. He does that. He also does it in another way as well, where we know that we shouldn't do something. I remember when we were thinking of relocating this church to North Ride, and we were praying through that as a core team. Um, and by the end, I remember just saying to the guys, you know what, I just don't feel a peace about it. And actually, it was one of the guys, I can't remember which one, they said, well, why have you changed your mind? Because you really wanted to go before. And I did. I just thought, this would be great. Um, I said, you know, I just don't feel a peace. It's just not coming. I'm not feeling a faith for it. I'm not feeling a peace about it. And so we didn't. We decided not to. And I look back on that and think, well, praise God we didn't. I think that would have been an error. 
um, to do that at that time. But we just have to recognize that that's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit involved in our lives, compelling us. So how does he guide us? Well, he guides us through the compelling of the Holy Spirit too. Now, just as an aside on that one, so we're all clear. I'm, I'm aware with both of these last two points that there can be a challenge and a potential of getting it wrong, can there not? Through misunderstanding the providence of God and misunderstanding the compelling of the Holy Spirit is very, very possible, correct? And you can do it. You can misunderstand providence. Jonah did it. In Jonah chapter 1, God has told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah decides, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish. I mean, it's a hilarious story because one's in the east, one's in the west. He's basically saying, I'm going to go in the exact opposite what you're calling me to do because there's no way I'm going to Nineveh. And then he gets to the boat in Joppa. There's never a boat in Joppa, but on this day there's a boat. So he just thinks, must be God. I'm going to get on. It's not God. He's told you to go to Nineveh. But he misread providence. And he thought in that moment, it must be God, and so I'll probably be all right. Well, of course, he wasn't all right. In 1 Samuel 24, David's men... As he's, discussing, as he's discussing things with the soldiers, Saul goes into the cave because he wants to use the cave as a bathroom. And David's men say, you know what? Now's your time. God has given Saul into your hand. Kill him. Let's be done with your enemy. And David says, you know what? I'm commanded to not harm the Lord's anointed. But his men were saying, it'll be fine. This is clearly providence. This is clearly God's opportunity for you to do this to him. His men misread providence. We can do that. We can also misread the compelling of the Holy Spirit, can't we? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, Our hearts are deceitful above all else. So our hearts can also deceive us into thinking we're being compelled by the Spirit. I once met a pastor that felt that he had been compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave his wife and marry his secretary. That's not the Spirit. That's the doubts of the enemy. That's the lies. You're misinformed. You're you misunderstood the Spirit. It's not guiding you to do something opposed to this. But also when it comes to other decisions in our lives, minor ones, I think sometimes we can misplace the compelling of the Spirit because we're overtired or we've eaten too much cheese or something of the sort. You know, there's times where you just think, I, I don't think that's God. I, I think you just seem really tired and you know, you're not thinking very clearly and very straight. I'm aware that we can make mistakes when it comes to this. I'm aware of that potential. I'm aware that there is the potential to get this very, very wrong. But more importantly, God's aware of that potential too. He's very aware of that potential. And that's why he gives us number four. The fourth way that he guides us is through the wise counsel of others. The wise counsel of people, brothers and sisters around us. You see, in our understanding of God's guidance, guidance, I think this, this can so often be the missing jewel in the crown. This can be the area that I think Christians can completely avoid and misunderstand. And so we grasp one, two, three, and we think, yep, God guides me um, through the word, through providence, through the compelling of the spirit. And that's the only way he guides me. So all good. The problem is, we can get that very wrong when it comes to the latter two. But secondarily, it's a very much a Jesus and me attitude. And whether you be very charismatic on that side of the coin, or very, very Anglican on the other side of the coin, or very word-centered, it seems to be that, that both sets of scenarios both disclosed the counsel of others. Both sides, it's just Jesus and me. Well, his providence, 
He compels me, and I've read the word, so I'm just good to go. That's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Because very clearly, biblically, through Solomon in particular, the Bible puts great, great emphasis on guiding us through the wisdom of others, through the counsel of others. Listen to these for a moment, because this is so important. Proverbs 1, verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11, verse 14. For lack of guidance, a nation falls. But many advisors make victory sure. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of the fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. Have you ever said to somebody in the midst of decision making, well, I just know it's God, I know, I know it's right. And they say, well, it seems like a really bad move. And I know it's right. Now, I'll tell you what I know is right. The way of the fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, verse 10. Wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 19, verse 20. Listen to advice. Listen to it. And, and accept instruction. And in the end, you will be wise. Proverbs 20, verse 18. You getting it yet? Make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. And Proverbs 15, 22, one of my favorites, says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. See, God has not designed us to be lone rangers for Jesus, okay? It's not the way he's designed it. He's not just said, well, you know what? I'm going to call you to be a Christian. I'm going to give you your horse and like, go for it. Go be Jesus. Go make disciples of the nations by yourself. It's not what he's done. He's not designed us to be lone rangers for Jesus. He's brought us into the context of local churches where we have pastors, where we have leaders, where we have brothers and sisters around us that will help us and encourage us and care for us and bring grace to us where we need grace through speech. But he's also brought us into the context of community because when it comes to counsel and receiving God's guidance through counsel, we need each other. Biblically defined. We need people that know us and care about us to speak truth to our souls. Whether we like it, the answer or not, is not the issue. The issue is that we just desperately need it. And I wish I'd understood that more clearly as a young Christian, as a young man. I wish I'd grasped that. Because to be honest, as a young Christian, I was the most arrogant Christian you would ever meet. I was. Because I didn't feel like I needed anybody. I've got the Bible. I've got God. I'm done. Who are you? That was my approach to life. I was a pastor's nightmare. Got engaged to a girl. I didn't ask anybody. Didn't think I needed to. What's it got to do with them? Well, biblically defined, absolutely nothing to do with them in terms of permission. Don't have to ask anybody for permission. But plans fail for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. Maybe that would have been worth chatting about or asking somebody about, given the depth of that decision. I didn't ask anybody. I just thought it'd be good. I'll be all all right. My life came crashing down around me. And I think it was God's grace that that happened. I think it was God's grace because it helped to humble me and realize I'm an arrogant fool. As biblically defined, I'm behaving like a fool. Don't think I need anybody. 
And that the reality of scripture is, I do. I wish I'd realized that earlier on as a Christian. You know what, folks? I, I think one of the things, if I may speak freely to you as your pastor in your church, I think this is one of the weaknesses in this culture. I mean, Emma and I have lived here two years. Very rarely do we get questions about anything. And that's not a criticism, but it's an observation. Whereas pastoral ministry more in the UK was people ringing up saying, hey, listen, thinking about moving away. Love to chat to you about that. What do you think? Um, Hey, thinking about getting married. Do you you think I could lead this girl? You know us. Do you think I would be able to really lead her before the Lord? Okay, well, I I don't know. What what are your friends thinking? Hey, Dave, I'm thinking about taking a new job. That's going to mean that I'm going to miss one in four Sundays and just wanted to know what your perspective was and got any thoughts. And Hey, have you spoken to your group leader about that? And and I haven't. I'll speak to them too. There was just more of a life of, let's do life. There wasn't this 2020 vision because, because the, here's the reality. When I never used to ask anybody, it was because I thought I saw my life with 2020 vision. We don't. Our heart is deceitful above all things. That's in the mix. We can misread providence. We can misread the companion of the spirit. So does God guide us through those things? Absolutely, but we can get it wrong. And that's why God says, well, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. He, he positions others in our lives and says, you know what? Check your subjective feelings with them. See what they think. I didn't want to do that because I was proud. And to be honest, I, I can think of no reason other than pride why I wouldn't ask somebody else their thoughts. It's the only reason why I don't ask. Because I think I've got it sorted. But the reality is I haven't. And none of us really have. And so I want to encourage you, find people then that you respect and you trust and open your lives to them. Are you asking them for permission to do things? Absolutely not. It's only counsel. You can go ahead and do, do whatever you want to do. You don't need to ask anybody for permission. Certainly as your pastor, you don't need to ask me for permission for anything. That's nothing to do with me. But we want to seek counsel of people. And so I want to encourage you, find people who you respect, you trust, people that you know know this word and that will be honest with you. And ask them, run decisions past them. And God will counsel you through that. I want to encourage you in particular, life group leaders and wives, go to them. Now the reason why we've asked these life group leaders and wives to be life group leaders and wives is because I think this is part of the role that they can do. Seek their counsel. See, there's nothing worse for a life group leader and their wife or a pastor and his wife than when when you become aware through the grapevine that somebody has probably just made a decision with massive consequences. And because you're a pastor, you go running after them. But the challenge is, when you do that, when you say, hey, I'm just wondering, can we have a chat about that decision that you made? The instant response from that person can be, who are you? You're already on the back foot. It's much better where big decisions are being made to say, look, I'm going to chat to my group leader and my wife about that. And I, I would love different people's perspectives. Does that make sense? Just trying to open up our lives to people because in the midst of many counselors, plans succeed. So life group leaders and wives, give them. If I can help you as your pastor at any point, I will. Don't think that you're bothering me. Sometimes people think, oh, I would have asked, but I think you're so busy. Yeah, but I'm never too busy to be a pastor. This is what pastors do. Pastors do not just 
preach and teach. That's called preachers and teachers. We're called pastors. It's because there's sheep and there's more, there's more things go on than just preaching in the midst of a church. There's one-on-one preaching goes on as well. Where you're just like, okay, well, let's look at God's word in light of the decision you're making. Let's pray that through. Often, your response you'll probably get from me is, I don't know. And that will encourage you um, in a strange way. But I'll certainly help you run it past scripture. It says, well, is, is that right? And I'll pray for you. And who else have you got involved in your life? But there's others. It's not just group leaders and wives. There are plenty. This, this church is brimming with people of, of wisdom who I think we can trust and respect. Open up your lives to them. Ask them. Ask them for help. Because God guides us through the wise counsel of others. Listen, life by nature is full of decisions. And I hope then that this message has helped just to bring a bit of clarity to this situation that is often full of misconceptions and full of uncertainty. God promises to guide us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. That's a promise. He will guide you. And he also promises, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What a comfort, eh? Knowing that this is a massive decision and I could really screw up in this moment. What a comfort to know that dad is right there. And he's, what he's effectively saying is, son, if you're about to screw up, I will providentially do something different anyway. So go ahead, you make your decision, and I'll be there anyway. I do that with my kids. Okay, Josh, what do you want to do? Okay, I want to do this. Okay, go for it. Oh, you fool. Let's get you. That's what you do. But it doesn't mean you don't let them make the decision. You do. And that's how we mature and grow. As you make decisions, then in faith, pursue his guidance through his word, through his providence, through the compelling of the Holy Spirit, through the wise counsel of others. And as we do, would our decisions truly glorify God? Let's pray. And if the band could come up, that's good. Well, Lord, I do thank you that as we look at decisions and as we look at a topic where, where our focus can actually be on us, Lord, I do thank you and I do position our gaze now to return once again to you. Because for those of us that are discerning, the reality is this message was all about you, your guidance, your care. Lord, thank you for your guidance. Thank you that you're not a quiet God. Your guidance is not the best kept secret. But your guidance is that of a faithful father who from age to age will watch over our coming and our going who will hem us in both behind and before, who will ensure that our feet never slip. Lord, I pray for all of us then, when it comes to decisions, would we not just in pride keep decisions to ourselves? But Lord, would we truly be family? I look then to the advice from others. Lord, would you help me in that too? As I seek to pastor to ensure that I'm taking the advice of the other leaders in this church. Lord, give us all grace. And Lord, in humility then, would all glory go to you in our decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.